From the home of creative writing on the internet, live and uncensored, this is Latopia After Dark. Featuring a fusion of low-down gossip and lofty debate. All hosted by Latopia's Peter Cox. It's 8 o'clock at night in London, it's 3 o'clock on the Eastern Seaboard, and it's 12 noon Pacific time, so good evening, good afternoon, and almost good morning. Wherever you are, I'd like to welcome you to Latopia After Dark, the podcast for writers from Latopia Writers Colony. It's another full show tonight, so let's get stuck straight in and meet our panellists. Working on a novel for the young adult market is Dave Bartram. Dave lectures in fine art, and he comes from England's West Country. I'm not going to try and establish where that is, Dave. I've given up on that pretty much. How are you? Have you had a good week? Yeah, it's, it's been full of amusing irony and uh, some interesting ideas, which is good. Ah, any time for introspection there at all? Uh, yeah, part of it was um, just daily life stuff, which has been quite amusing because of the ironies of, that have been going on, which has been quite cool. And looking at people like Gaudi and others and getting very excited by the potentials in there for uh, use in narrative. Mm. Wonderful stuff. Wow. Well, I think I feel a seminar coming on. From Fort Lauderdale, the Venice of America, we have writer and leading lawyer Donna Borman. She's just finished writing A Writer's Guide to the Courtroom, which will be published in December this year, and she's now working on several young adult writing projects. How's your week been, Donna? It's been very nice. I just came in from flying a kite, and the weather's uh, staying really lovely here, so I'm enjoying it. Wow. Do you mean literally flying a kite or figuratively? Literally flying a kite. It helps me think, and Hmm. um, the weather's been nice for it. Useful writing tip there already. Wonderful. Next up is Beverly Gray from Indianapolis, and she's currently finishing a fantasy novel. Beverly, you've been flying kites recently? No, it's been too cold. <laughs> but I've been dealing with clients that can kind of led you to fly a kite. Uh, it's more like flying a lead balloon, I think. That. Although I think I did make a paper airpoint at one point during the week. I'm, not, I'm a little fuzzy. Oh, it's that. pretty cool. Pretty cool. And competing our... Um, I don't know what it is, really. It's not a, a, it's not a triplet. It's a quadruplet, I suppose, of authors, is Eve Harvey, who writes children's novels for the 9 to 12 age group. And she's completed her first novel and is a reviewer on the website right away. And also the collective book blog of Volpe's Libris, which I've now just about learned how to pronounce. And she is also the podcast officer for Litopia. How are you, Eve? How's your week been? Too windy to fly kites here anyway, that's for sure. The wind is unbelievable. Um, it's and terrible. What's, what's happened to the snow? It's gone. No snow. It's warm, actually, for the time of year, but very windy. Well, let's fly a few kites here tonight on the Tiger <laughs> After Dark. Straight into the news. And actually, there is quite a lot of news this week. First news item is Amazon is buying Audible. Amazon has reached an agreement to acquire Audible in a deal worth about $300 million. Audible will remain in its Newark headquarters under the direction of Don Katz. And the first nine months of 2007... Audible had sales of $78.8 million and a net loss of $1.5 million. This is Amazon's second major move into the spoken word space. Last year, Amazon acquired Brilliance Audio. So uh, they're obviously uh, gathering the audio assets um, under the uh, under their skirts. Um, anyone got any views on this at all? I think it's interesting. Amazon seems to be trying to really corner all forms of uh, book publishing and, and uh, electronics. Uh, 
a Kindle yeah. and everything. So I, I think they're I, I think they've got some plans that I think so but, too. Yeah. I wonder if they're they're planning on uh, adding the Audible to the Kindle. Yeah, you can do that already, actually. Oh, can, oh, I, I haven't seen one yet. So. No, I mean that's that's one of the points of um, of the Kindle that you can you can do that. Yeah, so I think it, it's a very interesting situation that's going to develop in the next few years. Where I think I mean, my view is that I uh, I suspect that you will see Amazon emerging as a publisher in its own right, um, competing directly against the the biggest publishers in the business. And in a, in a, in another deal that, uh, because of its actually sheer vastness, its sheer size, does, will impact uh, authors and, and writers uh, one way or another. And it's been all over the news, of course. Microsoft is trying to buy Yahoo. The uh, word is that they will be paying something in the region, ultimately, of about $60 billion. Quite a lot of that will be in cash. That's Microsoft's cash pile. A very interesting piece here, actually, from Publishing 2.0, um, a think piece by Scott Karp, who writes about this deal that's had extensive publicity over the past few days. And he's done a little analysis. And he says this, and I think I think there's a, there's a lesson in this for publishers. He, he says the main problem with Microsoft and Yahoo looking forward is they're not web-native companies. They rely on centralised control models rather than distributed network models. Thus, they're not aligned with the grain of the web, which is fundamentally a distributed network. Um, Microsoft and Yahoo, he goes on to say, rely on software lock-ins. And anyone who's you know, familiar with Office, for example, will know what that's about, to maintain their user bases. But without distributing any of that value to the network or harnessing the value of that network would give them back if they did. As such, they do not benefit from network effects, which is precisely what powers Google and why Google will likely still beat a combined Microsoft Yahoo, which, of course, people are calling MicroWhoo. And he goes on to, uh, to say... Um, Finally, he concludes, the future of media belongs to web-native companies, particularly those who can innovate web-native business models. That's what Google did with AdWords, Liquid Market. And above all, the future belongs to companies that can leverage the network, and that can become the network. I think those are sort of deep thoughts, some deep thinking there. And um, the flavour of the year in book publishing is a dash to to the web. I mean, you're seeing enormous amounts of uh, money and effort going into the web now. And I really wonder if they they know what they're they're getting into. Any thoughts? I'd like to see Yahoo become competitive with Google. I think it's bad to have one with so much power out there. So I'd love to see them step up. Well, that um, with the the Microsoft buying them, certainly Microsoft has deep pockets. They might be able to position them, so they could do that. Going to a contrarian point of view, and still talking about the future of electronic publishing, which I make no apology for doing because it is such a big topic right now uh, in publishing. Um, Publishing executive online uh, has got a piece by Rob Yogel, who says, there's this fascinating story about print publishers getting introduced to digital editions. I first learned about them more than five years ago, when I was asked to research and interview vendors offering basically three flavours of digital editions, Flash, PDF, and some proprietary technology that uses XML and or JavaScript. Among other things, the companies showcased peel-back page animation with that always useful swooshing sound, search and hyperlinking without much proof or even information on how their products would save or make us any money. And he goes on to say, with conversion costs, that's conversion from print to digital, 
ranging anywhere from $15 to $25 or more per page, plus a ludicrous 20 cents or more to send each recipient an email with the latest digital edition, the economics of this new publishing technology just didn't make much sense. We eventually chose a vendor, not my first choice, with a product that forced readers to download a viewer, which turned out to be a mistake. We've since settled on using the Flash-based product offered by our printer, while I consider myself lucky not to be involved in this project anymore, as it still seems to be going nowhere fast. Um, he says the early promise of advertisers, which I think some publishers are, are building into their business models in terms of selling books. He says the early promise of advertisers paying more to enhance their ads with audio or video just hasn't materialised. And he uh, he concludes, he, he says, I see the benefits of using a digital edition as an alternative delivery method for subscribers who want to save the environment or who want to receive the latest edition before the USPS can get it to them. Um, but he says, personally, I've tried as hard as I can to embrace digital editions, but I just can't do it. I'll take a print edition to read on the train or on airplane or to my hammock or the beach. Otherwise, a well-formatted website that serves up its contact appropriately based on my device, web browser and screen display works just fine for me. So he's really questioning what is almost now received wisdom in publishing, that the future is digital. Any views? I gotta say, the thought of advertising on on a digital book makes me even less likely to buy one. Yeah, uh, Again, I, I think it's still so new. We're just not, we don't know yet how this is all going to happen. I mean, there's so many applications that can be done that there are going to be some silly stuff and good stuff. And continuing on the um, the theme of digital versus print and this, um, this headlong rush into digital without people really knowing um, you know where the money is going to come from ultimately in terms of consumers buying things. Some very big news, um, again through the online version of Publishing Executive, about uh, Condé Nast uh, Publications. And Chuck Townsend, president and CEO of Condé Nast Publications, said in a statement a few days ago, quote, our investment in House and Garden, it's a very big magazine, throughout the years has been substantial and we no longer believe it is a viable business investment for the company. And Bo Sachs, writing and publishing executive, says, well, that's surely his call to make, but the public death by hanging of an old and cherished lady of publishing with a fan base of almost a million paid copies a month sets the stage for a review, for a review of what constitutes success in the magazine world and I think makes a case for the impending doom of megalithic publishing empires. Um, he goes on to say, to me, it's proof positive that they haven't the slightest idea what it means to be entrepreneurial. The time is now, if ever, for all publishers to focus on the entrepreneurial side of their business. And he says, another point that I think rings very true in, in book publishing too. He says, I also think youth contributed to this murder. It's an old publishing tale of buyers and planners who are too young and in the earliest parts of their careers who don't yet have the tutoring to look beyond the numbers. These youngling buyers need the experience of years and the mentoring advice of seasoned professionals to look at the publishing business in a different light than other media. We're not an iPod. We don't claim to be one. We're not a download. We are are print and we have tremendous worth. We can reach market segments that are as yet untouched by the internet. This will not last forever but it is true for today for many titles. It's quite interesting because being in education, which has gradually been overtaken by accountants and business people, there, there's a, a, con, a continuous clash of culture between a business model and an educational model, and the priorities aren't always the same. And I think this is a very similar situation. You can't necessarily take 
this model and just apply it to that business and to that business. If you don't recognize the uniqueness of a given, you know, business set and, and, and business area, you're just going to end up failing quite badly, I think, worrying about the bottom line rather than the stuff that makes the bottom line. You know, if you don't actually think about the, the, the small details of what adds up to be the bottom line and just worry about that, you are going to be in trouble. And I think, going back to what we were saying last week, it is about multi-platform. It's not about one thing superseding another, I don't think. There will be parts of the market that are like this and parts of the market that are like that. And, and publishers need to embrace all of it proportionally and carefully. I, I couldn't agree more. I think they're very wise words. I, I do see a sort of a, a stampede towards digital without knowing where the money's going to come from. That's uh, a little disturbing. Uh, continuing our, our roundup of news, of course, um, biggest news item of the, the past week or so has been um, all the um, American primaries as Super Tuesday and so on. And that has impacted publishers. Publishers are wondering what they're going to be doing <laughs> in terms of publishing books. How can, how can we make money out of this, they're saying to themselves. Good old-fashioned publishing. And uh, as you'd expect, the people are trying to do McCain books. Uh, people are looking for manuscripts that um, Mr. McCain may well have written some years ago and digging them out and seeing if they can republish them, or perhaps if they can find a, a Republican voice or two who opposes uh, John McCain, who is almost certain now to be the Republican candidate. And on. Um, the other side of things, of course, it's by no means clear who's going to be the Democratic candidate, but it is clear that certain people have lost, and therefore, sadly, certain publishers have lost too. Um, the campaign is far enough along that at least publishers can safely predict some flops. Among the doomed are the Fred factor, how Fred Thompson may change the face of the 08 campaign. Um, Hugh Hewitt's a Mormon in the White House, 10 things everyone should know about Mitt Romney, and ex-candidate Bill Richardson's leading by example for which Amazon.com is offering a 64% discount just four months after it came out. Politics is even more cutthroat I, than publishing, isn't it? I think the one that everybody wants is the, is the Hillary Clinton memoir from the White House years, isn't it? That, I don't think yes. who's going to be in the White House is relevant at all. That's the yes, one that everybody right. wants, I would have thought. I, I wouldn't put Bill Richardson on the discount rate presidential candidate, although I, I think it's more leaning towards a Clinton-Obama ticket one way or the other. Um, I don't know. I, I got to spend a whole day with Hillary Clinton a few years back, so maybe I should write a book oh. about it. Well, I mean, yes. <laughs> Let's do the deal now. We'll do it tonight, I think, before business closes in New York. I was there when Absolutely. she uh, met Janet Reno, and I, I'm the one that introduced her to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who ultimately got the Medal of Freedom. So, did you get a, Did you get a feel for the uh, the person themselves? I like her a lot. Um, she was a lot of fun to spend a day with. Um, at the time when I was riding around with her, I was Bill Clinton's um, legal counsel for Florida, and um, I'm now a devout member of Wellesley Women. So uh, I like her. Of course, we have had a woman prime minister ourselves, but maybe we shouldn't get into Margaret Thatcher tonight. Uh, <laughs> however, still continuing on uh, on the political theme, last piece of news here, publication of a book called The Commission, The Uncensored History of the 9-11 Commission. Um, it, uh, it looks like it's going to be absolutely fascinating reading. Uh, the New York Times reviews it 
Uh, it says it's a, a tale of conniving or official blundering that the headlines can only hint at. Uh, the author's name is Philip Shannon. He himself actually is a reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. And in it, um, when actually very few people come out at all well, um, you get a get a, a picture of a, a lot of people who either have their own agendas or basically seem quite inadequate. There is what Mr. Shannon describes as the almost pathetic scene of Samuel R. Berger, President Clinton's national security advisor, sneaking documents out of the National Archive because he apparently feared that he and his boss would become scape, scapegoats for 9-11. And in a memorable scene, Mr. Shannon depicts the widows of 9-11 victims meeting Henry Kissinger. It was President Bush's first choice to be chairman of the 9-11 Commission in the posh offices of Mr. Kissinger's international consulting firm in New York. When one of the um, widows asks Mr. Kissinger if he has any clients named Bin Laden, Mr. Kissinger spills his coffee and nearly falls off his sofa. It's my bad eye, Mr. Kissinger explains, as the women rush to clean up the mess. Uh, like good suburban mums, Mr. Shannon says, one widow recalls. The next morning, Mr. Kissinger telephoned the White House to resign from the commission. And he goes on to talk about um, Condoleezza Rice, dubbed kind of lies a lot by the widows. Miss Rice comes across as almost clueless about the terrorist threat. Whatever her job title, this is a quote, whatever her job title, Rice seemed uninterested in actually advising the president, Mr. Shannon writes. Instead, she wanted to be his closest confidant, specifically on foreign policy, and to simply translate his words into actions. Attorney General John Ashcroft appears more interested in protecting gun owners from government intrusion than in stopping terrorism and dismissively tells the acting director of the FBI that he doesn't want to hear any more about threats of attacks. Um, And shamefully, the 9-11 Commission shied away ultimately from holding anyone personally accountable. Um, And what their recommendation turned into was uh, really uh, just one more layer of bureaucracy. Um, It sounds to me like pretty important reading for not just for Americans but for uh, for everybody I think the only, the only thing worth saying about it from from my perspective not really being well, being a long way away from it is there is so much out there about 9-11 and what may or may not have happened and who may or may not have been responsible for this that or the other any any official account of the aftermath is almost a footnote to the speculation isn't it in some ways that, that's probably all I can really comment on it, I think. I think like everything else, it's it's going to be many, many years before it's all sifted, researched, looked at. Um, things like that, things like December 7th, in order to analyze, you have to have the historical perspective. I mean, we're just now from a, a historical perspective point of view, actually analyzing Harry Truman and, and President Eisenhower and their presidencies, uh, you know, some of the common thoughts about them, the, you know, what people were taught in college 20 years ago has been turned on its head, other things have not. This is something that's going to be a long, long time being investigated at all levels. I'm so sick of 9-11, I, I can't even talk about it. Let's turn to this evening's main topic and it's time for me to nearly time for me to uh, shut up and let um, brighter more creative brains uh, loose um there's um there was a wonderful piece in the new york times just a few days ago uh, that talks about an american author called joan brady now this piece was actually sent to me 
by Donna, and I completely missed it the first time round, which is um, amazing because it, it is really one heck of a story. Joan Brady is a 68-year-old American who's lived in England for the last several decades, and in 1993, she became the first woman to win the Whitbread Prize. I think uh, regular listeners will remember that we talked about prizes um, a couple of shows ago, and the Whitbread is certainly one of the biggest and most important in the UK. She received a £115,000 out-of-court settlement, and if you want to translate that in dollars, just uh, multiply it by two and add a little bit, so it's not too far short, actually, of a quarter of a million dollars. She received this out-of-court settlement after arguing that fumes from the glue and solvents used in the Conker Shoe Factory next door to her home in Totnes, which is in Devon, pretty close to the West Country, had poisoned the air and made her sick. She suffered nerve damage, apparently, and a loss of concentration that caused her to abandon the literary novel she was working on, which is called Cool Wind from the Future. And instead, she had to crank out a pot boiler called... (laughs) 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 And instead, she had to crank out a pot boiler called Bleed Out. That's Bleed Out. (laughs) Right. So this this poor author had to abandon her literary career and and resort to writing pot boilers. Uh, And New York Times says... You have to conclude that Conquer, and that's the shoe factory exuding this gluey smell, that Conquer or its lawyers don't know much about the publishing business. <laughs> that is, if they really believe that Miss Brady had suffered from turning to thrillerdom. Thrillers, by and large, do much better than literary novels, and though the title Bleed Out turns out to refer disappointingly to kosher butchery rather than human carnage, it's done pretty well, selling some 50,000 copies in Britain alone since it came out in 2005. An author seeking damages would do better, one would have thought, by claiming to have become so addled that she decided to forsake a certain payday for the vain hope of literary success. And what's behind the Brady controversy, of course, says the New York Times, is the assumption that a genre of fiction, mysteries, thrillers, romances, horror stories, is a form of literary slumming. These kind of books are easier to read, we tend to think, and so they must be easier to write. And to the degree they're, ent- they're entertaining, they can't possibly be serious. Well, this, um, when I'd stopped laughing about this, and I think Donna herself fell out of her chair laughing, when I stopped laughing, I started to think about it, and I thought, well, actually, what is this really all about? And I, th- I think what it's about is ego. It's, um, it's the, the bruised ego of, of not writing literary fiction anymore and having to resort, quote, to, to pot boilers that, that are commercial. I'm not sure how much financial loss is really involved in that. But then I started to think to myself, well, actually, what is it about writers that makes them do that? Is, is it just ego that drives them? It's easy to give a glib answer to that. Part of it depends on who you are, of course. Part of it depends on what you want to achieve. You may just want to write for money. I say just, but actually, it's one of the hardest ways to make money. But some people do actually set out with that goal and, uh, and, and achieve it. Or do you write for yourself? Do you primarily write for, uh, for expression? Or do you want to entertain others? That would fall under the category of communication. You may just want to escape from a job that provides money but doesn't nourish the soul. And have I ever told you that by profession, most of the submissions I receive come from lawyers and dentists? Well, I've got my own theories on why that should be, but I think now is a very good time to 
toss the whole subject over to our panel of four writers to do a little bit of navel-gazing tonight, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So, exactly why is it that you do what you do? Well, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll just start to say, I have a pair of conker boots, actually, because uh, we're not that far from Totnes, and I think uh, to call that tiny little shop in a very narrow little street of factories possibly pushing it. I'm thinking about suing the farmer up the road for the smell of cow shit, actually, because it's clearly putting me off my game. Sorry, that was my aside. Please, somebody more intelligent, carry on now. <laughs> I don't know about, about more intelligent, but I, I love this article, and, and I'm still laughing about it. The concept that any kind of writing could be brought on by toxic exposure, well, it explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I've well, that's almost thought. a story in and of itself, Donna. I mean, that actually ties into <laughs> one of your young adult books. From well, I've always thought that writing fiction involved an element of insanity. We all talk in Latopia about having characters in our heads, and I go to writer conferences and I hear the same thing. Yeah. And who else yeah. would get away with that and not be institutionalized? Maybe writing Actors. is just a form of, of insanity and and if we didn't write we would be institutionalized for schizophrenia or multiple personality or something like that um why do i write um i guess i could say the trite because i have to i've written as long as i can remember um not the same types of things and in junior high i wrote poetry probably like every other uh teenage girl um but i've always written Something. I, I've always written nonfiction, uh, which comes easy to me, and it still does. I remember winning loads of essay contests early in life. Um, my first novel, Why Did I Write It? It was actually a murder mystery that I wrote 24 years ago for the purpose of knocking off a boss that I hated in real life. <laughs> So it was therapeutic. It was, and I, I think that a lot of it is therapeutic for me. I tend to um, have villains that um, mimic people that I, I know and dislike in, in real life. Um, so, and it's certainly not for money for me. You know, I, I, if I wanted to just make money, it would, it would certainly be for that. Now, I, I'm actually pursuing it seriously and for filthy lucre now because I figure if I'm doing it anyhow, I may as well get paid. Um, but also because I think, like all writers, I want people to read my work. Um, but really, why do I write? You may as well ask why I'm right-handed. Um, the truth is I have no idea. Um, I guess by default, my answer is that it's probably a form of insanity. Yeah, um, I was just thinking about that. I, I made some notes because it's such a big question. And um, I, I thought of, there are three parts to this question. It's kind of like a Venn diagram, if you like. Why do I write is one question. Why does anyone write is another question. And why does anyone do anything is, is the third question. Um, by that, I mean things beyond the things we must do just to uh, you know, keep ourselves going. And I was thinking back to the, to the dawn of civilization, as one does, um, when there, there are two main kind of theories behind the idea of, of why art came into being, you know, cave painting and so on. And one theory is that it had ritual purposes of some kind. And the second one is that it's simply people learned how to make fire and find shelter in caves and they weren't out hunting woolly mammoths all the live long day uh, and they had time on their hands and were bored and started to entertain themselves. So is storytelling have, it, has, have its origins in kind of ritual magic to improve the hunt and all of those kinds of things or was it simply a way to start passing the time in a pleasurable way? And that takes us back to why does anyone do anything mostly to try and get a positive outcome for themselves in some way, shape or form. Now what that gratification is, who knows. 
why do we write particularly to do that? I don't know. F- from from my perspective, I started writing when I was about 15, mainly because I, I read Tolkien and thought it was really cool and thought it'd be fun to write something like that. And um, I thought it would actually be... Uh, it's interesting, I should have carried on with that stuff because, you know, people like Robert Jordan made a fortune doing kind of pap and what I was churning out then would have easily done the job um, but ironically the work I'm doing now I'm actually telling the same story I was telling when I was 15 but with a different narrative if that makes sense uh, so there's a drive to get something out there but what it exactly is I don't know well I do know but if I told you all I'd have to kill you all obviously um, so it's a puzzling one Sorry, shut up again. <laughs> I just stopped, don't I, randomly. It's like, like a bad driver. Just one minute <laughs> it's going and then it stops. Sorry. Well, I did that earlier, that. Dave, so, so we'll give you that one. Well, I was talking to my husband about this earlier, you know, saying what we were going to discuss tonight. And he, he put the question to me, you know, well, so why do you do it then? Um, and uh, I went, oh, no, the, because I have a lot to see and I to say about the world and have a lot of opinions and um, and he, he kept shaking his head he kept saying nope nope that's not why you're right that's not why you're right <clears throat> and eventually um, and we agreed that it was because I can tune out the world um, which I find slightly scary sometimes and I retreat into my own head and uh, live a lovely life in there full of amazing things happening and uh, I don't have to deal with everyday life and uh, we agreed that that was probably why I do write is because I get it in there and I can make sense of things by putting it down on paper and um, and I'm just slightly reclusive <laughs> and one of these you know these cats <laughs> these old women with their cats and, and oh they'll watch it you're getting close head. to home on that one <laughs> <laughs> so I'm slightly mad and slightly, but I think also I have this um, things going on in my head all the time, all the time. Um, like you know the hyperactive children. Um, you know I'm not hyperactive bodily, but my brain never shuts up on and on and on and on all the time. Um, and I think writing is kind of like my ritalin. It it keeps me focused. It, calms me I feel great when I'm writing and I write things down and I feel good after that and I think it's it's this active mind that goes 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 all the time all the time and ideas and flying about so I I write to keep myself calm the kind of the the analogy you could draw is it's Possibly like fairly, you know, it's like drug abuse, isn't it, to an extent? If you get a good, if you score some good gear, it's a great <laughs> yeah. feeling. If you score something that's been cut with something a bit dodgy, you come out of it worse than before you went in. I don't yeah. know, that, that could be complete rubbish. I have trouble <laughs> starting my mind, not stopping it, curiously. But um, no, it's, it's interesting. It's, we should possibly, maybe we should get a psychiatrist in, or a psychologist would be better, wouldn't they, to tell us why we do these things, because they'd probably have an answer that we don't because we're too close to it, maybe. Ah, but would we believe them? I'd never believe anything a psychiatrist or a psychologist said to me. I've worked worked with these people. They'll say anything. (laughs) That's my point. (laughs) Just turn them into a character for a story. Beverly. Yes, sir. Come on. Everyone everyone else is fessed up. It's time for you to... I've been thinking about it. Uh, Keep in mind, I've spent over 20 years being a technical writer. And that's eight hours a day, you know, five days a week kind of thing. I've done user manuals where engineers bring me little black boxes and just say start pushing buttons and tell us how it works and software and validation of of laboratories for pharmaceuticals uh, 
audiovisual lessons for the Omar Bradley fighting vehicle, which is an infantry wow. personnel carrier. Um, but my degrees were in history. I'm, I wasn't an engineer. I wasn't a technical person. So I went from teaching to just answering an ad for you know, a job, and I just served my apprenticeship and worked all the way up, and suddenly, you know, over 20 years later, this is what I do. I write, I like the fiction, because I always want to know how things work. Even when I was a little girl, it was, it was always fascinating to me, you know, why is the sky blue, Daddy? That kind of thing. And, and in the writing, whether I'm doing the historical novel or the fantasy, I can make the world the way I want it. It's it's a god complex, Peter. I think for a lot of people. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, Andrew Greeley, who is a, uh, a Catholic priest, who's a sociologist, who's written a lot of fiction. He's written a lot of mysteries. He wrote a book many many years ago called the uh, I think it was called the God Game in which the main character is a computer programmer and he creates a little world as a programmer, but to the people in this little world, he is God. And I think many authors, for whatever reason in their lives, they may not have control over their lives, they may not have control over the people in their lives or their finances. As a writer, that's the ultimate control thing. Uh, when I create a fantasy world, I create the language, I create the people in it, uh, even you know how the technology works. And I don't think it's peculiar to fantasy. I think all writers go through that to some extent. Uh, just the setting, you know, how do these people live? What's their living room? Uh, a lot of people now find that outlet through computer games, things like the Sims games, the simulated games. Others still write to do it. Others still paint. Uh, I, I think it can be therapeutic as it is for Donna and, and Eve, but I think it, it for others it, it goes back to Dave's caveman analysis of you're bored and you just want to create something. You probably have as many reasons as you do writers. And most of us have no clue why we do it. <laughs> well, I think I think we're getting there. We're making some progress. Uh, one thing I've noticed is that um, no one yet has mentioned the P word that's, that's being published. Why, why is that? I mean, I, I know that all four writers here tonight are very committed writers, and being published is, is an important thing for, for each one of you. But um, no one's actually mentioned that so far as, as you know, as, as a reason to, to write. So what significance does that have For, for me, publication is a wish. It's, I wish upon the star. It's not an expectation because of the luck factor. Um, uh, and for that, I, I, anyone who has not read it yet on Latopia, we have linked to Michael Allen's uh, online essay on the survival of rats in the slush pile which is an outstanding essay about writers, karma, luck, and how it all fits together in a way to basically keep your expectations in line. Uh, yeah, publication would be great. I, I'd, I'd love to be able to go into bookstore and see people reading my books. Do I have to have it? No. I don't have to have it as a validation as a writer. Um, I've already been told by people I respect that, yeah, you wrote a neat little story there. So, unless you're 
in in that for the ego to me it's not that important you know it, it's a wish thing it's kind of like gee I want to be a ballet dancer when I grow up cool okay. if it happens but doesn't ruin the writing for me if it does not I think publication go ahead no, well, I was just going to say there's a couple of things to disagree with there. One is I, I actually don't want to see go into a bookshop and see people reading my books. I, I, I want to go into a bookshop and see them buying them. <laughs> they might put it back after they've read it. I want to see them coming away from the cash register with them. Um, and it, it, publication is important because I think um, th- there's an opportunity to, to make shed loads of cash, which is, is a, you know, a nice idea. Uh, it is a remote possibility at the end of the day there are a million and one hurdles aren't there to be to be jumped that you can't always fully understand or predict until you actually meet them head on and find out what they are uh it's but yeah i think you've got to put it there as a very firm and determined goal otherwise if you can't visualize it as something you really want to have you're not going to be driven enough to get it no, it's there enough to make me hone the craft, Dave. I want it enough to, to keep trying to, to be a better writer. But on the other hand, I won't, don't want to drive myself into a suicidal depression just because Lady Luck is not getting me on the right desk of the right day of the person who's going to want the book. And, uh, you know, I go back to J.K. Rowling, if uh, her editor had been on holiday that day as jk herself has said harry might still be under his cupboard under the stairs i mean it's the luck is a huge aspect of it and i don't think we should ever ignore that some people are very lucky i don't happen to be someone who has a lot of luck and that's why in order to make the whole thing work for me i have to keep the expectations within reasonable limits yeah i think that that's uh, yeah i mean reasonable is good isn't it because you don't want to give yourself unreasonable expectations but me writing for me is one thing and i will write in a way that is probably unpublishable but me writing to seriously try and get something honed and put together for sale is possibly something slightly different you know i work stylistically i'll work differently i'll i'll consider ideas that need to be more clear and more focused. I'll think about a market a lot more. If I'm writing for my own pleasure and catharsis, I have a story I'm writing now. It's my pot boiler that is just about, I spill all my vitriol about the rubbish in my life in this work. And I, I would never for in a million years think anybody would seriously look at it and think, oh, that's good. I think we'll give you, you know, £400,000 to publish that, please. But that's not what I'm doing that for. And I think, for me, maybe that's a little bit kind of schizophrenic, but I don't necessarily see writing for pleasure, pure pleasure for me, as the same thing. See, to me, any writing you do, whether it's, say, in a private journal that no one will ever see but yourself, which in a way is kind of what you're doing with your pot boiler, you're still practicing the craft, you're still working at the craft. Now, you, you may be making the, the decision that, well, this isn't really aimed for the, mark, you know, for the publishing market, so I choose not to do this. You're still consciously deciding at what level this thing's being written. So you're still bringing that professional oversight to the writing. What you do with it and how you target it, yeah, that'll vary. I mean, I have little things I write that are strictly for me that 
you know, I even have misspelled words in them. But that's because I, okay, I'm too lazy to look up the word. But I made the conscious decision to, this doesn't matter, no one's going to see it. I don't need to bring that professional level to it. Let me just take a question in here. Very simple question. Um, is it easy? Is the act of writing easy? And if it isn't easy, um, why do you do something that's hard? The writing is easy. The editing is horrible. I, th I think it's abominably difficult, actually, to, to do it well to the point where, I mean, the kind of benchmark I use for my own writing is the benchmark I use for a, a book I read. I'll pick a, an example that, that people are probably familiar with. If you if you read Wolf Brother, for example, um, you re I read it to try and break it down and analyse it and understand why it works the way it does. But I end up reading the story because it's written so well that I get drawn into it whether I'm trying to analyse it or not. And when I go to edit a bit of my work and I read it and I stop editing and just read it, I know I'm kind of getting somewhere because... The, the craft of it is invisible to me as a reader, and that is an appallingly difficult thing to do, I think. Yeah. Well, Michelle has said to me several times, books aren't written, they're rewritten. And I think that's very true. For me, writing yeah. nonfiction yeah. has always been easy, and, and I, I do it really because I have something to say. And um, as far as publication, I've actually had order. And I love the fact that uh, years later, people will call me and ask me a question about one of my articles or something. It, it tells me that I've actually done something useful. Um, and with a book coming out that's nonfiction, um, again, I'm going to enjoy it. People are going to hear what I have to say on the subject. Um, I think nonfiction inevitably um, becomes uh, outdated, and so it, it won't last forever. The thing about fiction, though, I, I wouldn't describe writing fiction for me as either hard or not hard. I would des describe it as fun. Um, but the thing about children's fiction, um, and, and I think that this is what it's probably about for most fiction writers, but especially children's fiction, is it's a little slice of immortality. If you look in the children's bookstores and, and uh, the, book, the children's section of bookstores, you, you that have um, had stories out there forever. It, it, children's books get read and, and read for decades, um, if not centuries. So for me, it, it, the idea of public, publication in the children's world, it's just a little slice of immortality. That reminds me, uh, I heard the other day somewhere that E. Nesbitt, of all people, was a Satanist. Did you know that? <laughs> I hadn't heard uh, that. I was I was really taken aback by that. That was just sorry talking immortality and children's writers. I thought, whoa, that's really quite a surprise. Uh, do you know, Dave? I've been trying for years to find somebody who would like to write a biography of Ian Nesbitt um, because she had such a fascinating life. Um, and that's you know that's uh, the uh, Satanism. I'm not. I'm, I I don't know about that actually. Um, but uh, if if you if you've read it, somewhere, well, well, that I'm was sure the word true. that was used on the radio, and it was Radio Four, so it oh must my be God. true. Right. Oh, it must be true in that case. Yeah, um, but so much else of her life was um, so uh, larger than life. Plus, her books are still read today. And I think she had this extraordinary understanding of um, how children's minds work. Um, and she was, she was capable of talking to children. I remember she was writing in the late Victorian times um, and Edwardian times. Um, she was capable of writing to children in a, in a completely level, non-patronising way. 
And, you know, as far as I know, uh, in recent years, there hasn't been a biography of Ines, but, but I've never, it's a project I've never been able to get off the ground, unfortunately. No, she's very, I mean, I remember in the, in the 70s reading a collection of short stories called The Last Dragon and Some Others by E. Nesbitt. And oh, I, I can't remember how old it was. And it was just great stuff. Yeah. Really brilliant. Yeah. Oh, I always liked her books. Storytelling. <clears throat> Storytelling is what a lot of writing's about. Um, if we go back to Dave's people sitting under a starry sky around the campfire, um, amusing themselves with stories. Actually, there'd only be one or two storytellers in, in their midst, and most most of the people would be listeners. It's like, um, well, I suppose a lot of people have aspirations to be a writer, but very few people actually do anything about it and uh, start to hone their craft, as Beverly says. So, storytelling in itself is, is, is a bit of exhibitionism, really. It's more towards the extroverted end of the, the scale. And yet, paradoxically, most writers I know tend more towards the, the thinking end of the scale, the, the introverted end. I mean, that's, that's a paradox in itself. How, so, can somebody square that for me? Well, I think it's very simple. With the writing, the, the story, the words are captured on a device, be it a clay tablet, be it a piece of paper or parchment, be it words online, you don't necessarily have to have that visual face-to-face to do it. Now, an oral historian or a bard from the, the Middle Ages, these were people who did their storytelling, but they did it vocally. So, they had to do it in front of an audience. So, I think that's a little bit of the difference right there, Peter. And if you look at the linear development, you have this kind of split. The more introverted people became writers, the more extroverted became actors, jugglers, circus performers. They're still storytellers, but they use a different medium to do it. At the SCBWI conference, there was one of the writers was speaking about the characteristics that she thinks are common in writers. And she asked everybody in the room uh, to put a picture in their head of the people that they considered popular in their junior high or middle school. And when she had everybody confirm that they had that picture in their head, she asked everyone who saw themselves in that picture to raise their hands. And only one person raised their hand. Um, she, uh-huh. she said that she thought that was pretty common among writers, that we kind of felt like outsiders. And she also asked us how many of us had ever been in a situation um, that we felt sort of divorced from that we were standing outside observing rather than participating in and and most of us had uh, I, I think that writers tend to be introverted we tend to stand back and, and look at things maybe be a little bit shy but we can put those things then on paper that are hard to express in person there's, there's a, something that was said to me a long time ago by by an old by an art lecturer it wasn't an old kind of chinese guru or anything this time honest although he did have a wispy beard um <laughs> He's <laughs> a very nice guy, actually. And uh, he said, artists, and I think we could, we could group writers in with this, we're, we're like kind of shy stage performers. We, we, we want to say something, but rather than go up and say it ourselves, we create an artifact, put that in the public eye, and then scurry away. And so the spotlight falls on the artifact. And, and it, speaking of yep. artifacts and, and writing for oneself, I just found my, my diary, which I thought I'd lost, which is a great relief, because I'm kind of diarising my current projects, so if that's one way to keep myself on track. And speaking about writing for myself, I can't read a bloody word. It's quite extraordinary. <laughs> world on G- Gova as lead, be, <laughs> old stuff. 
No. Oh, good. Someone's handwriting as poor as mine. <laughs> you know, so it's, 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 I might as well just throw it out. I can't understand the word I've written. It's quite, it's quite extraordinary. Now, when Were you using some form of shorthand there, Dave? <laughs> no, I think that's my proper writing, actually. Ah, it's even okay. more depressing. Yeah, no, I think I, I, there must be an excuse, but I can't think of it at the moment. But oh, no. I have an excuse for you for, for poor writing. Especially in this day and age, we spend so much time on keyboards. Our ability to write by hand is deteriorating rapidly. Ah, that makes Steve, sense. Steve, you're, you're a blogger, aren't you? I am a blogger. I'm a part of a collective blog, yes. Mm-hmm. A, collect- a collective blogger. So you can, you can avoid individual yes, responsibility. I step back quite often. I mean, in, year, in years gone by, uh, writers would do exactly what um, Dave is, uh, is talking about now, which is to collect their letters and their diaries and this, that and the other. Yeah. Um, but these days, it's blogs. Is it the same thing for you? Uh, well, no. You see, that <clears throat> that's my problem. I am throw it out there and then run away I'm very backwards very shy very I would hide um, I don't know why I do this writing business and want to get um, certainly I'm I'm on for publication uh, that's my goal that's where I'm headed for I I there's no not caring for me I care very much and that's where I'm heading for um, and it scares me it scares me a lot that what happens after that i have friends who are coming up for books coming out now who are absolutely bricking it for interviews on radio and what am i going to say what you know feed me lines what am i going to say here and 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 we all are the same we're all the same we all hate it we love the writing part of it the sitting down the crafting all the rest of it but absolutely don't want to stand there and tell anybody about it um, yeah. and I think it, blogging's great because it's the same thing you type you just type it up on the screen and then you hide and people come and read it and you don't know whether they've read it or not <laughs> and, and yeah it's very much a similar situation we're all, we're all happy that everybody's come to read it, but we're glad we weren't there while they were reading it. <laughs> I'm, get, I'm getting a, li- a little worried here because kind of teaching for a living, my job is to stand up in front of groups of people and tell them what stuff is and so forth. And I, like oh, I the play teachers in- are automatically passed on that, Dave. You have a special... Are we, al- are we allowed? But I, I, yeah, I, teachers I, have a special exemption. You, you have special uh, genes. <laughs> Since talking uh, Plus, you're used to it as well, though. You're used yeah. to it with teaching. You've you've grown. You've sort of learned that as you go along. This is all something. Do you know? I've always hidden, and and to be th- suddenly thrust in. So with teaching, you're all right. You're not so bad. Yeah, well, you've always I don't know. done it. it. It doesn't fit in with the kind of the introverted writer stereotype, though, does it? It's like you know, I I sing in a rock band as well. That's not really very introverted. Oh. Don't mind me. That's just... creative, though. Well, it's, it's shouting rhythmically, I think, is rather than creative. But it's, it's not shy and retiring, is it? You know, I don't know. But, but, but are you different. doing with people or by yourself? Oh, in front of people I mean, who usually say... No, Stop. but are you in a band or are you a solo? Oh, with a band. Okay, with well, band, you've got yeah. your mates with you. That's different. Yeah, yeah. I've done, done the solo thing as well. I used to busk at one stage as well. In ah. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's quite an interesting one. Oh, you're well, not, you're not right, are they? I've just been barred from the club, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you'll just be the mascot. <laughs> oh, thanks. I speak thanks. in public uh, a lot, and I've spoken in front of groups 
lot of things. I don't mind that. Um, and I was in a rock band when I was in law school. Um, I had to drink rather heavily to actually be the lead chick singer, but but I did it um, and didn't mind it so badly because I was with a group of people. But what frightens me is walking into a group of people I don't know, like will just kind of crawl into a corner and stand there. I, I won't be the one that goes out and, and introduces myself. People come up to me and talk yeah. to me. I'm fine, but um, I won't be the one that gets out there and, and works the crowd. Well, hey, thank heavens for agents, eh? That's exactly <laughs> right. Huh. <laughs> we, we do have some of these. Um, Ian Banks at the De Maurier a few years ago, and he was reading from Dead Air, I think it was, which was started with with news of 9/11. Funnily enough, to bring us back to the beginning, um, and he was a, a fantastic raconteur. Uh, you know, he was like Billy Connolly, but funny. Very good. <laughs> Billy Connolly so, is funny. That's what people tell me. I'm, I'm yet to <laughs> see the evidence myself. But there you go. Well, thank you very much, everybody. I think we've um, we haven't entirely revealed the writer's dark and mysterious personality tonight, but I think I think we've shed a little light on one of its many facets. Oh, and just to clarify if I may, Peter, yeah. I do care, Eve. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to sound blasé, but I do care. I want to be published too. Oh, that counts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so relieved. <laughs> and in conclusion, let me leave you with this thought. The Japanese have a philosophy that trying to do something perfectly is aspiring to be like a god. So, small imperfections are positively accepted as a sign of lack of vanity. On our humble panel tonight were Beverly Gray, Donna Borman, Eve Harvey and Dave Barsham. Thank you very much, guys. Do watch Andrew Gilman's Moving Wallpaper on ITV in a few moments. And let's do it all again next week. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Good night. And now for the Colophon. This podcast comes to you from Litopia Writers Colony, www.litopia.com. If you've enjoyed it, please give us some good word of mouth and tell all your friends about us. Show notes and links referenced in this episode can be found at www.litopia.com slash podcast. If you're not already subscribing to the podcast through iTunes, and remember iTunes works both on the PC and the Mac, then we suggest you do so right now. You'll find it by far the easiest method of listening to full instructions on the Autopia website. And if you do use iTunes, why not give us a review there too? Speaking of feedback, we want to hear from you, and we'd be delighted to receive your thoughts, comments, views, and suggestions. There's a handy and easy-to-use comment form on the Latopia website itself, but also you can send us an email, or you can even record your thoughts as an MP3 file and send that to us too. Our email address is podcast at latopia.com. This is Peter Cox thanking you for listening and looking forward to being back with you again soon.